Welcome to the 26th episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. Uh, what happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, the past week was one of the most problematic since very early in the coronavirus pandemic. The number of newly diagnosed cases averaged over 170,000 a day, and that's likely to be a small fraction of people, given that 40% of individuals are asymptomatic and that access to testing has been limited due to the spiking incidence of disease. Moreover, for the entire week, the number of people hospitalized with COVID-19 was at an all-time high approaching 100,000 individuals. And similarly, the number of patients needing ICU treatment from the coronavirus hit a record of over 17,000. As one would expect, the death rate has climbed, with last Tuesday exceeding 2,000 deaths, a number we've not seen since early in the pandemic. More specifically, there were 2,092 deaths, the highest single-day mortality since May 6th, when there was 2,611 fatalities recorded. Even in states like California that have been rigorous in their public health policies, we're seeing this pattern. In response, the state has put in place a nighttime curfew after 10 p.m. in 58 counties, accounting for over 90% of the population. And right now in California, what we're seeing is the highest hospitalization rate at any point in the trajectory of COVID-19. And with Thanksgiving having been an opportunity in many households for viral transmission as college students returned home and out-of-town guests came to celebrate, Jeremy, these numbers are likely to continue exceedingly high and maybe become worse in the weeks to come. Rabbi, the data on the number of cases and deaths is distressing. Is there any reason for optimism right now? Jeremy, the most positive piece of data we're seeing is specific to the falling published mortality rates. But as we said in this show, that number is very dependent on how it's calculated. The numerator, the, the number of people who die is relatively straightforward, although some individuals point out that people with underlying heart or lung disease who also have COVID-19 may have actually died from their chronic disease rather than the virus. On the other side, some experts note that individuals who succumb at home 
may have the cause ascribed to the underlying condition when in fact it was COVID-19. So let's assume that the two factors balance each other out. Then the biggest issue is the denominator, the actual incidence of the disease. And we think it's probably three to four times higher than the number of positive tests. That results from two factors. First, there's a high incidence of asymptomatic patients. And of course, many of them never get tested. And even for those with symptoms, there's been difficulties accessing the tests, leaving these people out of the count. Furthermore, the final mortality number is dependent upon who gets sick. An average number does not apply to the population. And what we're seeing is that recently there's been a spike in cases amongst younger individuals, people who have dramatically lower chance of requiring hospitalization or dying compared to the elderly and those with multiple chronic medical conditions. In addition, there's been about a one-third reduction in mortality based upon the ability of physicians to treat hospitalized patients and prevent death for those who are critically ill. And I want to stress to listeners, this is a tribute to the doctors and the nurses who faced this disease for the first time and had to figure out ways to provide optimal care, ways to avoid intubation and ventilation. These physicians recognized how the virus impacts blood vessels and the positive impact anticoagulation can have in minimizing organ damage. And they've accomplished the major reduction in mortality without any new drugs that actually prevent death, but relied on a long-term steroid, dexamethasone, for some patients, an anti-inflammatory solution that no one would have thought about at the start of the pandemic. So where are the COVID-19 mortality numbers likely to land when this is all over? A report from the University of Washington calculated that the mortality was now down to 0.6% from 0.9% in April. Epidemiologists from Columbia University School of Public Health have calculated it could be as low as 0.15% or one and a half times greater than the flu, but nowhere near the five times or 10 times higher mortality rate that people feared. As you remember on coronavirus, the truth, we talked about a rate possibly as low as 0.3%. And we calculated that based upon the published numbers of 0.5 to 0.6%, corrected for the 40% of people who are asymptomatic. At this point, an exact number isn't possible since the distribution who gets sick in the pandemic isn't random and testing is relatively minimal. If we continue to see broad spikes in those who are relatively healthy, we will end up with a number from the pandemic closer to the 0.2, 0.3% range 
On the other hand, if we continue to see the people exposed being those who are most vulnerable, particularly people in residential facilities, nursing homes, and if we continue to see hospitals getting overwhelmed by the current spike, then we could see numbers that once again start to approach 1% of those infected. We will have to see what happens following the most recent Thanksgiving celebrations and, of course, the upcoming cold season when people are likely to be indoors, exposed to higher concentrations of the virus. I had a a very well-respected chemist tell me that he feels there are a lot of red flags about a lot of the vaccine news coming out right now uh, from the scientific perspective. Uh, He said that vaccines typically take years to make and test for safety. Uh, We also have never even had a successful mRNA vaccine in humans before. Now, within a matter of weeks, we have three at record speed, uh, shared with the public via pharmaceutical company press release. This has caused a lot of skepticism around how safe and effective these vaccines will actually be. Can you start by explaining the differences among the various vaccines that have been in the news lately? And are you, as a healthcare expert, skeptical about these vaccines at all? And if so, how much and why? Jeremy, as you point out, vaccine development is happening at a pace never seen in the past. And the issues can be very confusing. Let's begin with the three basic approaches that scientists are using to develop an effective and safe vaccine. The coronavirus that causes COVID-19 contains genetic material similar to humans, although it is a single-stranded RNA, not a double-helix DNA. When a virus infects a person, Its RNA instructs human cells to create new virus. Part of that is having our bodies make more RNA for the genetic material inside the virus that allows replication and transmission. And some of it is to create RNA to instruct our bodies to produce various proteins needed to sustain the virus. In response to infection, our immune systems identify these proteins as foreign, and that makes our bodies respond. These two battles between viral replication and the ability to fight the virus battle in our bodies, and hopefully our immune system wins the war without damaging our bodies in the process. The traditional way a vaccine works is for researchers to take the virus itself and alter it so it's no longer capable of causing disease. Having done that, this weakened virus is injected into people to stimulate our immune systems so that when an alive virus enters our bodies, we can respond immediately and prevent the infection from taking hold. Although there are companies working on following this approach with this particular coronavirus, this approach to vaccine development takes years, since if they alter the virus too little, 
There's a major risk the vaccine could cause the actual disease. But if they modify it too much, the immune response may not be strong enough to avoid infections. Instead of this more traditional vaccine development route, the vaccines that have recently been touted in press releases use one of two approaches that are different than the traditional methods, and these are the mRNA vaccine solutions. Instead of using the actual virus, they use the messenger RNA, the genetic material that instructs the human cells to produce a particular protein, in this case, the spike protein on the ends of the coronavirus protuberances. Having created the protein, people's immune response is generated, antibodies are produced, and T cells, white blood cells capable of recognizing foreign protein when it enters our body and starting the immune response, become activated to attack this virus before it can get a hold. As we said, there are two different ways that this is being done in laboratories across the world, but across the United States today. Both Pfizer and Moderna have approaches that utilize the actual mRNA. The problem with this solution is that the mRNA is relatively unstable and requires very low temperatures in order to keep it effective. And that's a logistic headache as minus 70 degree range cooling requires heavy refrigeration units, making transport and distribution very difficult. Second, the cost of this particular virus is close to $50 for the two doses that are administered. The alternative is from AstraZeneca and is being developed by Johnson & Johnson. They place the MRA in another virus, a chimpanzee adenovirus, one that's believed to be harmless in people, and they then inject this modified organism as the means of vaccination. The advantage is that this vaccine is easier to store and very inexpensive to produce. It's a type of vaccine being developed in Russia. They call it Sputnik V. Standard refrigeration allows them to be preserved for six months, making it potentially useful for doctors in their offices. And its projected cost is likely to be under $10 for the two doses that need to be administered. However, how effective it will be remains controversial. When AstraZeneca recently promoted its vaccine success, it pointed out that at full strength for both injections, the protection rate was only 62%. But when a half dose was administered for the first shot, 
the efficacy rose to 90%. When the press release was first distributed, scientists were perplexed. This was an unusual finding. The issues became even more muddled when the company announced that the half-first dose wasn't part of a research protocol, but an error made by British researchers who underfilled the syringes. I think what we can say is that most likely more testing will be needed before there'll be FDA approval as a consequence of all this muddied information. And this takes us back to your friend, the chemist. To date, all the public has to try to understand what's likely to happen with these various vaccines are press releases, and that's inadequate and very problematic. As an example, we subsequently learned that in the half-dose cohort, all of the patients were under 55. That changes the information dramatically. And this group only were 2,800 recipients, or 10% of the total number of people vaccinating a very minimal number of individuals to make a determination about vaccination for 300 million Americans. And all this makes the positive results even more questionable because if the vaccine only has a 62% success rate, then the implications for its ability to protect the population are very different than when we're talking about a vaccine with a 90 or 95% success rate, as some companies have promised based upon minimal data, but once again, without releasing any of the facts. Jeremy, I'm sure you recognize from your time in business, companies in press releases don't include questionable facts about the products they're developing or highlight risks and complications from them. It is why I believe there should have been a requirement for full disclosure of data when the United States government agreed to pay billions of dollars to these companies to accelerate the development, and I'm not clear why that was not done. As a result, what we can say about the future is more optimistic than it was prior to this initial set of results from phase three testing. I mean, had it shown that the vaccine didn't work at all, we'd be back at square zero. What we also can say is that despite the hype, the vaccine rollout still has a long way to go. There's still a lot of facts that we must learn. Even though companies might have the theoretical ability to begin initial vaccination as early as the end of the year, most likely it's going to be close to a full 12 months before we reach the level of herd immunity needed to start to return back towards the old normal. Robbie, we had a ton of feedback after our last episode where we covered conspiracy theories. Um, we had a lot of people thanking us for covering these topics, but we also had a lot of people reaching out saying, okay, you covered the conspiracy theories, but what about covering some of the legitimate concerns and questions that you know more educated and informed people have? Uh, people who are not conspiracy theorists. Uh, Robbie, you know, I know in our podcast together, we 
do our best to not shy away from answering the hard questions. And this is kind of what we're going to be addressing now. Uh, the first question we received was, how do you explain the situation in Sweden? They took a relatively minimalist approach to intervention in relation to COVID-19. And then they seem to be having better outcomes than almost any other European countries. Why? And why is this not being talked about more? They're essentially back to normal with no mask mandates, everything open, very little social distancing, etc. Jeremy, we have great listeners, and I very much appreciate their feedback and their questions. Let's try to focus on the facts of what's going on in each situation and unpack it for listeners so that we can get past the hype and the politics into the science. There are two issues. One is, what is the national policy? And number two, what do people do? This virus couldn't care about the policies per se. What impacts it is people's behavior. What we see in Sweden is that, as you've pointed out, that the types of restrictions that have been imposed in other countries are not there to the same extent. But of interest, what we see is that people are wearing masks and they are keeping socially distant and they're doing many of the things, I'll say, often better than other countries that have put in place the theoretical restriction without in any way enforcing it through the government actions. And that to me becomes a real challenge. If you create a policy and you don't do it, then people start to ignore it. If you use education of the populace, which is what Sweden has done very effectively, then you have the possibility of people doing the right thing to maximally protect itself. The second part to it is that in many of these countries, as in the United States, the asymmetry of the mortality based upon age and chronic disease is great, and Europe is a place with an older population even compared to the United States. What we see there is that citizens over 60 account for 9 in 10 fatalities. That people coming out of nursing homes are particularly at risk as they are in the United States, and Sweden has done a better job of most than most of the other European nations at being able to protect this vulnerable population. Early in Sweden's approach, the mortality rate was dramatically higher, even in nations like Italy and Spain. But by focusing in on the individuals at greatest risk and being able to educate everyone else about opportunities to minimize transmission. But as you point out, the results have been positive. The second question we received was around the accuracy of the testing. The listener asked, 
Elon Musk received four tests for COVID-19 on the same day with the same procedure, same nurse, same equipment, same lab. Two came back positive, two came back negative. What's going on here? Furthermore, there was an incident with NFL testing where 77 players tested positive. None had symptoms. They then reran all of the tests and all were negative on the second examination. Why should anyone trust testing and why should we even bother if it's that unreliable? Jeremy, this is a great question because it highlights the problems that come out of taking specific incidents and trying to generalize them. I don't know exactly what happened to Mr. Musk, but I do know about the NFL situation. Specifically, what that happened is that these 77 players were given a coronavirus test and it came back positive, and then when they were retested, it was negative in all of them. What happened? Epidemiologists traced these players on different teams in different locations back to a single laboratory, and it was a mistake. It was a laboratory error. Laboratory errors happen. That doesn't mean that the test is no good. It means that the laboratory didn't do the job that it should have done, and in this case, of course, it was corrected. Almost always a positive coronavirus test means that the person has the disease. The issue really is with the negative tests. Negative tests often are wrong. First, the actual obtaining of the specimen is uncomfortable. So insufficient amount of material often is swabbed, and therefore the result comes back negative because the virus was farther back, deeper in the nasal pharynx. Second of all, the test itself requires that the viral load be great enough that you can actually have coronavirus, but it's not yet advanced enough for the test itself to be positive. None of this means that testing should be thrown away. It's just that it's not a panacea. You have to put it into the context. You're exposed to someone with a disease or you come down with symptoms, you should get tested. If the testing is positive, you should be quarantining and expecting that you actually have the disease, even if you're totally asymptomatic. If the test comes back negative, you can't assume that you don't have it. It's not that the test is worthless. It's just that it's not 100% diagnostic. You either can be retested a few days later after you quarantine, or you can just be added careful, making certain that you don't develop symptoms going forward, it's based upon a degree of risk and percentage, and that is how we interpret tests. A lot of the tests we do in medicine, mammograms are a great example. 30% of the time, two radiologists will disagree about a mammogram result. That doesn't mean the test doesn't work. It just means that it's not fully diagnostic, and the same is true for other cancer screening tools. We still use them, 
but you use it multiple times to come to a definitive answer. A single negative test is not definitive, although most often in these areas, as it is with testing for coronavirus, a positive result is definitive. The listener asked, why should anyone trust testing? And why should we bother with it if it's unreliable? The answer is we should not totally trust it if it tells us we have a negative result. We still should be cautious, at least until it's repeated. And why should we bother with it? Because it provides us with a lot more information than if we just close our eyes and assume everything's okay until we become very sick. Rabbi, we actually had a healthcare professional push back on your answer from last episode that healthcare organizations were not coding extra COVID-19 cases for financial reasons. They said, people in the medical field everywhere roll their eyes at the claim that hospitals aren't falsely claiming COVID for the money. This happens all the time in healthcare and not just for COVID-19, but for everything. Providers code things in a way or lean towards providing services that reimburse better, especially if they are under financial pressures to do so, like a hospital that has not been doing elective surgeries for the past few months. Robbie, what are your thoughts on our listeners' comments? Jeremy, I have several thoughts. The first one is that the listener has pointed out a truth that we often keep hidden, which is how coding as it's currently done, often is used to maximize reimbursement rather than to document what is actually happening. As I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, the book that I'll be publishing this spring, Uncaring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, talks about a physician culture one that tolerates this type of, I'll say, distorted coding. I don't want to call it dishonest coding, but it emphasizes those things that maximize reimbursement rather than trying to be maximally accurate. Having said that, I do not believe when it comes to COVID-19 that the number of people for whom COVID is being diagnosed as the cause of death is greatly exaggerated. And the reasons are several. The first is that although hospitals do get a higher reimbursement, if that's the case, it's physicians who actually fill out the death certificate. They have no added financial incentive to do so. And a lot of reasons to make sure they're being honest. Because if there's any evidence that they're not, they have potential personal liability. The second thing about it is that if you die from, let's say, a heart attack, that event is usually well documented for someone who's been into a hospital. And so COVID-19 may be the consequence of the chronic disease, but if you're hospitalized with pulmonary failure, with lung failure as a consequence of that, 
it's almost always going to be from COVID itself. And to claim that someone has COVID when they had a completely unrelated type of infection, it's just not justifiable based upon the laboratory testing and results. Because once again, what you'd see is going to be negative COVID testing outcomes. So the only possibility would be someone who tested positive for COVID but died from something else. And the number of times clinically that's likely to be the situation, as we said earlier, would not dramatically change the number of cases. And as we've also pointed out, that it's actually more likely that people are being undercoated for COVID when they die at home because everyone knows they had a variety of longstanding chronic illnesses and they'll just assume that the elderly individual must have died from a heart attack or must have died from pneumonia when in actuality it was the coronavirus that was the etiologic agent. The next question is similar to one that we recently discussed with Z-Dog, and it was a very fascinating conversation. This question came in from a listener. If someone told you there was a virus, unnamed irrespective of COVID-19 existing, that had an overall survivability rate of 99.9 population-wide, 99.99 for those under 35, and is somewhat more dangerous for elderly people, as nearly all viruses are, but still has a well over 90% rate of survival amongst even the most vulnerable. What should a statewide or nationwide response to that scenario be? They then said that they believe that anyone with medical or public health knowledge would answer nothing as to what a nationwide or statewide response should be. Robbie, what are your thoughts? And, you know, do you think things like a 24-hour news media, social media, and the hyper-partisan politics of today are contributors to the way we responded? Jeremy, as always on this show, let's start with the facts. As we said earlier, the mortality it's, is probably not 0.1%, but probably somewhere in the 0.3 to 0.6% range. That's one fact. But there's a second fact when it comes to this particular coronavirus, which is that people around the globe, in this case, I'll talk about the United States, have never experienced it. They have no immunity. And it's a virus that has exponential growth. The r naught, as we've talked about before, of three. One individual would give it to three, so that very quickly it goes from one to three to nine to 27 to 81 and so on up. So that creates a different view of what's likely to happen. This is a virus that if you ignored it, would spread rapidly and would do so until 200,000 people were either infected and recovered with antibodies or immunized. Now, it sounds low to say zero point, let's even say 0.3%. All right, that's about one in every 300 people. But when you start talking 
about 200 million people having it at that rate. Right? Now you're talking about 600,000 or maybe even a million people dying. And that's a lot of deaths. Now there's one more factor, one more fact we've got to put into place, which is how long will it take for a vaccine to be developed? Now, if a vaccine would have taken several years to be developed, then by the time it came along, those 200 million infections would have already occurred. If a vaccine is going to come along quickly, then maybe it's only going to be, let's say, 50 million a quarter of that number, three quarters of the lives saved. This is the real calculation. What we know is that how the virus will be transmitted from one person to three to nine to 27, that will happen under normal social distancing. What we know is that of those infected, assuming that it's across the whole population, what the mortality is going to be look, look like. Is the shutdown... Is the social distancing, is the potential social isolation worth that number of lives? That's not a scientific question. That's a values-based question. And everyone may come up with a different answer. So that's what I would say. This is not something to be ignored despite the small numbers because the size of the population is so large. But to your last point, Jeremy, I agree completely. What is happening with this virus that should be viewed through a medical, public health, social development, educational lens often has become one that is divisive and politically driven. And I think that's wrong. So to go back to the listener's question, if I believe that the vaccine would not be here for multiple years, then the idea of trying to limit the spread would be very problematic with one exception. Another issue we've talked about on this show, which is that of privacy. Because you can limit the spread. Nations like South Korea have been able to accomplish this, but only by having major use of social media, of credit card information by the government to do early identification, contact tracing, and mandatory testing, and required isolation. Again, Jeremy, we're back to issues of values. Which is worse, a certain number of people dying or major imposition on people's privacy? And the problem, as you've described it in the social media and the political context, is we never have the right conversation which is that is that the sacrifice we're willing to make? Not are we willing to wear a mask and keep socially distant, but are we willing to allow our privacy to be invaded in order to save 100,000 or 200,000 or 300,000 lives? 
And in that context, everyone has the ability to have an opinion, and every opinion needs to be included. But what we need coming out of that is a public policy plan, a true strategy, one that we do not have today. This question brings up something that I know a lot of people want your opinion on. As we're seeing another wave of lockdowns, small businesses and restaurants permanently closing, job loss increase in suicide, drug use, alcoholism, domestic abuse, and a dramatic increase in mental illness. Were lockdowns and economic restrictions the right response in the beginning? And are they the right response now? If you were the chair of, say, you know, the coronavirus task force, what would you want the government response to be? This is a great follow-up to the last point that the listener made. This comes down to values. This comes down to how do we compare the challenges around childhood development when schools are closed? How do we compare the impact upon families that happen when a business closes and unemployment ensues? How do we compare all these pieces against people's deaths? That's a values question that I think as a nation, we should have the right conversation. And then at some point, leaders need to step in and place a strategy in place based upon those comparative values. If I were the person accountable, I would lead those conversations. I would get that kind of feedback. People might not like the answers. They would be based upon the Pareto principle, the 80-20 principle. I'd be looking for the opportunities to minimize the number of deaths while maximizing the positive aspects and minimize the number of social consequences while maximizing the health of people. It would not be an all or none answer. It would be some type of compromise, but it would require a lot of communication. And at this point, that has not happened. And we continue to be bouncing back and forth. We open and we close. We have schools closed, then we open schools, then we close schools and businesses. At this point, Jeremy, what's very problematic to me as a physician is how we do not yet have a strategy to address this that includes all of the pieces and then makes the hard choices with clear understanding of what are going to be the consequences. We keep hoping for some solution that will have no problems. It just simply does not exist. Putting everything together, if I were the chair of the task force, I'd apply the Pareto 80-20 principle and push for dozens of changes. Here are five. First, I'd want all schools to be open at least two days a week, in person, with masks and modifications in hours or activities to maintain six-foot distancing. The long-term price we pay as a society for the loss of education and social maturation, at least for elementary school children, will be with us for not only decades, but generations. Second, I'd focus on the types of super spreader events and locations and ban any events involving large crowds, 
As part of that, I'd pay bar and small business owners to close down if there are no alternatives that allow outdoor dining or home delivery and compensate them for the reduction in revenue when there are intermediate approaches. That way they could avoid closing down forever. Third, I'd, ask, I'd urge the president to use the power granted to him to get manufacturers to produce protective gear and testing capability that match our nation's requirements and make sure they get distributed to all hospitals, doctor's offices, and nursing homes. Fourth, I'd force drug companies to provide scientific information to scientific experts on all of the data they have around their vaccine development and phase three testing at least a week before they make any PR announcements. I'd ask these experts to predict the likely timeline for vaccine availability and achieving herd immunity. And based on that information, I'd recommend either tightening or loosening the constraints rather than basing most vital decisions on simply the number of documented cases in a given geography. And finally, I'd communicate clearly, often, and honestly. I'd explain that the decisions made would invariably be received negatively by some, but I'd want to make that disagreement be based on differences in perspective and values, not facts. The idea that no one will die isn't possible. And the idea that no one will be hurt as a consequence of reducing transmission and overall mortality is equally impossible. As an example, is it possible that a child could increase the risk to a grandparent in the house if school happened in person? And the answer we all should agree is yes, it could happen. But is it true that children will have delayed development and possibly never catch up to where they otherwise would be, impacting not only their lives, but that of their children? It's also likely. As such, it really isn't a school question, but a difficult issue around maximizing life now versus over time. Given these two realities, I'd focus on other ways to keep the grandparents healthy besides closing schools, even if it meant having to provide alternative housing and home food delivery. In contrast, today's politically driven approach ignores one or the other side completely, pretending either that closing schools prevents spread by children, which it doesn't since they can get the virus in a lot of other locations, or that virtual education is equal to in-person for young children, but it's not. My observation, Jeremy, is that nearly all the choices we face are a combination of both best science and values. I believe we should all be able to agree on the former and recognize that our differences of opinion usually reflect the latter. Instead, we pretend that the basic disagreement is over the facts. And that's what leads, as we've spoken in today's episode and, a, and last one, to a variety of conspiracy theories on both sides of the political aisle. The facts are that masks help, but they're not perfect. Young children are very unlikely to be harmed if they catch COVID at school, but teachers will be exposed through in-person classes. 
The coronavirus is transmitted by close contact indoors, but a third of restaurants can't exist for over a year with 25% occupancy or less. If we all agree that in-person educational experiences are needed, then the conversation becomes how to accomplish it. If we all agree that masks work, we should be discussing when to use them, when it's not needed, and how will we make sure that everyone does. And if we understand the plight of restaurants and small businesses and the impact of losing jobs that it will have for millions of people, then we tie that with the economic and educational solutions that are available. We have the opportunity to maximize the savings of life and minimizing the various psychological and long-term consequences for people. If I head of the task force, Jeremy, I shift the conversation, expand the focus, make sure we had a specific strategy and implement an operational plan to achieve it. It would not be perfect because there is no perfect solution, but it would be far better than we have today. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and in all podcast platforms, including Apple, Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you very much for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.